This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, August 12, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The past isn't a perfect guide to the future, but what can we take from the wild elections and political party crack-ups of the past? Anthony Comegna is assistant editor for intellectual history at libertarianism.org. He spent years studying the politics of the 19th century, and that history offers lessons for the weird election year we now face. We spoke Wednesday. We have witnessed um, a lot of uh, parallels drawn between this election and as a historian, what do you viewing this election think of in the past that says, oh, well, this election's actually really like this other election? Yeah, we, we always hear uh, 2016 is going to be like 1896 or it's going to be, uh, oh, geez, 1852, 1848. I tend to think, I've heard several others too, 1912, I think. Um, I tend to think that uh, it strikes me like all of our craziest elections rolled into one, um, which speaks to uh, the novelty of new events, um, that you know, nothing that happens in the present or the future is going to be exactly like what happened in the past. We're always dealing with a new context. Um, now, it does strike me, though, that uh, institutionally we're dealing with similar mechanics that we've seen before. Now, while that won't tell us exactly what's going to happen, um, it will certainly give us an idea of what we're looking at um, and where we might be headed if X, Y, and Z factors hold. Uh, so it strikes me a lot that uh, we're working with the potential crumbling of the party system as it stands. And political scientists, I think, count us on the fifth or sixth party system right now, uh, although I'm not sure quite how useful that is because the two parties uh, have basically existed uh, the way that they are for their entire lifespans. Um, and the Republican Party, uh, even before that, when it was the Whig Party, now it wasn't. Uh, completely made up of Whigs by the time it was Republican, but we can talk about that in a few minutes. Van Buren set up the Democratic Party in the late 1820s specifically to get Andrew Jackson elected. He thought Jackson had it stolen from him in 1824, uh, perhaps like we might imagine, you know, Trump is already saying that they're stealing it from him. Um, but Van Buren specifically wanted to get Jackson elected. He set up the Democratic Party as a, a coalition of Southern planters and Northern yeoman farmers and workingmen. Uh, so it was supposed to manage political conflict by uh, uh, orchestrating the votes of large sections of the population brought together by similar ideals. Uh, now the ideals were things like free trade, um, but it, it really uh, was about different uh, uh, identity groups, um, different interest blocks. Uh, so they, they didn't have quite a, uh, a, ideolo a firmly ideological party. You know, Jackson uh, wanted to collect uh, tariffs from South Carolina and even, you know, threatened to go to war with the state over the issue. Uh, he was not exactly a free trader ideologically so much as he was a nationalist um, and just a fan of using American power. But the party functioned extremely well uh, managing the various interest groups throughout the country and pulled together a national coalition that really dominated the period. Now, the Whig Party was brought into existence specifically to counter the Jackson Party. 
and the thinking was that this party, if unchecked, will be an immoral force in the United States. It will destroy the constitutional order, pervert public morals, and degrade national power. So they set up the Whig Party uh, as a broad-based coalition from all sections, specifically uh, made up of people uh, uh, countering the Jackson administration. Now, when you talk about uh, Van Buren setting up the Democratic Party, uh, before we started recording, you, you suggested that what he was consciously attempting to set up a party that was a big tent with a with various interest groups who uh, had their uh, single issues or dominating issue and then use the party structure to actually manage the conflict among the various interest groups to, to hold that coalition together. Right. He knew uh, that, as one historian said, uh, calm and consensus were not usual things in his world. Uh, that conflict was really the rule of the day and that political parties' purpose was to channel all of that conflict through one organization and specific elected representatives to manage it politically, uh, that is to avoid violence and bloodshed by attempting to intercede politically. All right. So the Whigs represent, represented a, as you said, a moral counterweight to that. What does that mean? Well, they were really motivated uh, by moral issues, things like prohibition, uh, things like anti-prostitution. Um, they were religious voters uh, for the most part. They later called the Democrats uh, the party of rum, Romanism, and rebellion, uh, whereas the Republican Party was called the party of public morality. Uh, but that started with the Whigs. It was mainly a, a group of people who conservative-minded who thought that the Democrats represented decline and decay of public morals um, and that simply using the government for spoils and for uh, the interests of your particular identity group or power block uh, was corrupting. Um, so they, you know, titled themselves the Whigs as uh, recalling the English tradition of court versus country, uh, that the, the virtuous people would have to stand up to the king and his court faction, um, Jackson being the king. So the, the Whigs were really uh, about a different moral vision of the universe, um, and they did not see the parties so much as a vessel for managing conflict as a means to, to propound the right view of the world, much like you know, John Adams would have said, right? Statesmanship is about being virtuous and leading the people virtuously. Uh, if, if you have to call yourself a natural aristocrat, so be it. That's fine with, with the Whiggish frame of mind, right? Some people are better than others and should teach others how to live better. Uh, that was the goal of statesmanship in their view. Now, the parties gradually became less and less differentiated, largely because the Whigs realized they had to copy the Democrats' methods if they were going to win. By 1840, they won. Uh, they ran a hard cider and log cabin campaign against uh, Martin Van Buren, and Harrison won handily. Um, and by then, it seemed like the, the Whigs had conquered the Democrats using their own methods. And uh, essentially, the two parties were no different from one another from that point on. They worked the same way. They you know, uh, coordinated their efforts the same way. They uh, courted the population the same way. And they became less and less distinguished. So by the end of the decade, by 1848, you had uh, pockets of the population that were seriously disturbed by where policy from both parties were taking 
uh, uh, the country. So especially the issue of slavery became important. You, you had a longstanding uh, group of Liberty Party voters from the 1830s, though they were very small and pretty non-influential. Once they were joined in 1848 by uh, the barn burner Democrats from New York especially, uh, the barn burners were uh, m mishandled, let's say, by the Polk administration. Polk supported their opponents in New York, the Hunker faction, conservative Democrats. The barn burners were more radical Van Buren men. Now, because Van Buren lost to Polk in 1844's nominating process, uh, the barn burners felt like they were on the losing end of the party. And then Polk took us to war to extend slavery. The barn burners thought that this was a slight against northern interests. Uh, they tried to pass the Wilmot Proviso to, to uh, forbid slavery from spreading into the West. That failed. So they thought there's nothing left for us here in the Democratic Party unless we remake it uh, according to a more radical vision. So they left. They bolted the party. They joined all these, these dissident Whigs, anti-slavery Whigs that were out there in places like the Liberty Party. Um, and they made a, a third party, with the purpose of which was to force differentiation on the two major parties uh, by making them take a stance on the issue of slavery in the territories. Now neither party did. They, they went with popular sovereignty, uh, so oh, we'll, we'll just kick the decision to the people. And then when the people made their decision, national politicians still didn't want to make, you know, go one way or the other on it and make a very clear stance. So you had several years where no, no one in the major parties were handling the, the most pressing moral issues in the country. Uh, so more and more people left. Uh, they decided, like their radical democratic forebears, they were really against monopoly. Uh, and slavery was the very worst of all institutionalized monopolies in American life. Now what we're looking at today is a libertarian party that seems dead set on destroying the current worst monopoly in American life, if you will. Perhaps not the worst, but one of the worst institutionalized monopolies, the two-party system. Uh, Bill Weld says he's tilting the two-party duopoly dragon, right? And they want to destroy that. Um, if the LP can garner enough support to clearly make it the main challenger to Donald Trump or even Hillary Clinton, uh, if they can get enough support to get that high, uh, then it will certainly appear after this election that the Libertarian Party is the main challenger to become the next major party. Uh, if the Republicans cannot seriously differentiate themselves from the Democrats morally, if they will not take the strong anti-war position, the pro-immigration position, the pro-gay marriage, the pro-legalization of drugs, the Black Lives Matter stance, uh, if they won't open up to those moral issues and show change, um, that party will continue to calcify and no longer be useful to the public. If I understand you correctly, this uh, the moral counterweight that uh, in some ways that Bill Weld has talked about that the Libertarian Party would like to be hinges on this large group of people who are who do not draw strong distinctions between Democrats and Republicans, both see that see both parties as flawed, perhaps fatally so, and, and trying to say, look, I'm for these things, mm -hmm. and that is how I'm going to choose a party. 
Yeah, I think that's accurate. Um, and it's especially telling that young people seem so supportive of a third party, uh, especially Gary Johnson, but also Jill Stein polls very well among uh, very young voters. Uh, so I think, you know, historians have noted that about every 80, 70, 80 to 90 years or so, there is a period of unraveling and rebuilding of, a, of major institutions in uh, the United States and in English history before that. So in the Anglo-American world, we generally have these periods of unraveling and rebuilding, uh, and it's usually the young people that end up rebuilding uh, what their elders have ruined, basically. Um, and you know, we see Donald Trump's politics uh, are basically out of you know Archie Bunker's living room, um, and that really strikes young people as not the world they want to live in. Uh, they don't have a problem saying that black lives matter. They don't see that as meaning that white lives don't matter. Uh, but the almost immediate instinctive reaction among uh, so many uh, more aged Republican voters uh, is that saying black lives matter must mean that you're excluding all others from that. Uh, and young people simply don't think this way. I think. Uh, to them, it seems much more obvious what we should be doing, what kind of society we want to live in, um, and that we are not living up to that with our political parties. Uh, they, they look at Donald Trump and see all sorts of problems that you know are probably immediately apparent to most of us. They look at Clinton and they see um, pretty much exactly the same. The woman of system. Yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> the woman of system, the founder of ISIS, whatever you'd want to call her. Uh, I, she, we came, we saw he died. I, you know, she, they see a certain bloodlust and lack of ethics among both candidates that's extremely distasteful to visionary young ideologues. Um, and while, of course, it is, it is a, perhaps, you know, young people need a dose of Van Buren's practical realism, trying to, to simply manage conflict. Uh, but perhaps it's also good to have an unraveling of that basically uh, pointless attempt. I mean, politics is violence. You can't manage violence nonviolently. Uh, so in, in a lot of ways, Van Buren's um, quest was um, impossible from the start. It was chaotic. Uh, but, you know, young people... Uh, they maintain, let's say, an attachment to American institutions. They think that surely they can be run better. And we do not need just these two parties in order to do that. Party seems to matter very little uh, to people who are more ideologically motivated. And while historians have noted that through most of American history, uh, practically every election, voters are drawn to the polls mainly for ethnic and religious reasons, their, their identity block or their interest group. Uh, they vote according to that. In these unraveling and rebuilding periods, it's mainly moral questions that decide things. You have a young generation that's steeped in uh, ideology, like the libertarian uh, past four or five decades. Libertarians have been working to create the movement we're now seeing build up to the critical mass. Um, in 1856, I think, uh, John C. Fremont got about 33.5%. Um, he won almost every northern state. 
the American Party got something like 21%. They only won Maryland. Um, the Democrats maintained a national coalition, and they won the election, and their party stayed together. Uh, but it was clear from the returns in 56 that Fremont could have won the whole thing if he'd won just two more northern states. So uh, by 1860, those two states were in the bag, and that was it. That was the critical mass. Now, the whole shift from the Whig Party to the Republican Party, the uh, collapse of the second party system, started in 1848. Now, it has its roots earlier than that. But politically, it really started in 1848 with a small faction, the barn burners from New York. They didn't even have a vote in the Democratic Convention. They were seated there as a courtesy. It was the hunker faction that had the votes. And they walked out in mass in opposition to the nomination of Lewis Cass, who was basically pro-slavery in the territories. His position was popular sovereignty, which they took to be pro-slavery. Uh, and just that small faction gave enough political opening and support to the pre-existing Liberty Party voters and Northern anti-slavery voters to come out of the woodwork and create a new growing national coalition. Twelve years later, they took the White House and smashed the South uh, and destroyed the monopoly institution of slavery. Um, who knows whether this is the election of 1848 or whether it's 50, 52 or 56 or 60. Maybe it's all those put together. It's something new. Uh, new and kind of terrifying, but perhaps leaves an optimistic, uh, uh, you know, uh, vision out there for us to pursue. Anthony Comegna is assistant editor for Intellectual History at Libertarianism.org. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>